0: Well, the program is on the cusp of making a move to the football bowl subdivision, a long-awaited, long-sought-after move from its fan base, and, and we'll get into it here on the Walkthrough Podcast. Welcome in. Today is Thursday, October 28th, and this is another edition of the Walkthrough Podcast by The Daily News Record. I'm Greg Medea. JMU football beat writer at the paper and host of the podcast. It's good to be with you again. James Madison football, of course, the news is swirling. The rumors are flying. It's been nonstop since last week, and I did talk about what the situation was for, for James Madison last week on the podcast, and, and since then, it's it's only become closer and closer to a potential move to the FBS. I'll get to some of the on-field stuff a little bit later on. You'll hear from James Madison offensive tackle Nick Kidwell, James Madison defensive lineman Abbey N. Akonagy, who uh, who I spoke to earlier this week on Tuesday after practice. You'll you'll hear some of those interviews uh, as as I'll touch on and recap James Madison's win at Delaware. Uh, Look ahead to this Saturday's meeting at home against Elon so I'll get to all that, but, but we're going to start today. Three comments you need to hear will be a little later on, but I'm going to start today bringing my colleague Shane Metlin, uh, the James Madison basketball writer at the Daily News Record, and then we're going to dissect, talk about what this impending move to the Sun Belt for James Madison means across, uh, of course, football, but, but basketball too, and, and where some of the news and timeline is at. Uh, with with when James Madison could potentially announce. So, Shane, first of all, thanks thanks for coming on the walkthrough podcast. Figured it was appropriate that that me and you break this down uh, for the fan base. Shane, what's going on, man? How you doing?
1: I'm uh, doing well, thanks.
0: Yeah, it's been a it's been a busy uh, it's been a busy week to say the least. I, I was telling somebody Delaware the other day. I was like, man, I've been less busy before, you know. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so that that's kind of where we're at. And to this point, I do want to say we are taping this on Wednesday. So if you're listening early Thursday morning uh, when I release the podcast, if news have cha- if news has changed, I'm sorry. We're taping on Wednesday, and at this point. Southern Miss has already announced it is headed to the Sun Belt, Old Dominion is going to follow on Thursday morning, and James Madison and Marshall don't seem too far behind James Madison on a little bit of a delayed timeline, Shane, when it comes to to its potential move to the Sun Belt. There are some things James Madison has to work through first. and. I think the the most telling sign is it'll hold the board of visitors meeting on Friday.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to be, uh, moving from the press box to the, uh, board room here for a <laughs> <laughs> morning to, uh, for our coverage here coming up. Cause yeah, that's going to be a huge, huge thing. I mean, nothing unexpected I wouldn't think, but, um, definitely something we want to be there for to, uh, You know, see how it all ends up going down.
0: Yeah, somebody was asking me, and I've seen the question on Twitter a few different times. I've seen it in emails. You know, is there any way this gets caught in a snag? Is there any way this gets slowed down by the Board of Visitors or what happens at the state level? And my takeaway is James Madison is not taking it uh, to that level, without knowing they're going to get approved for this move from the Football Championship Subdivision (the FCS) to the FBS, that's just my opinion. I don't know if you feel the same way, but my take is JMU—they ain't bringing it. They ain't bringing it to the board, and they ain't bringing it to the state unless they know they're getting approved.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is—I uh, I would be shocked if it's anything more than just waiting for rubber stamps from both the board of visitors and the state government at this point. It's—it's it's been. Years, possibly a decade in the making. You, you would think that the uh, everything would be in line before they let us get to this point.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly my thought. And, and it just is a, as a as a holistic look at JMU's athletic department, Shane, I, I you mentioned it there that it's been something JMU has built toward, right? It seems like it's been an inevitable push toward the FBS level and that it's outgrown the Colonial Athletic Association and the FCS on, on the football side and, and really football since it drives it and you look at the stadium JMU plays in compared to c- compared to what the other CAA schools have and, and you look at what its future potential conference members have and, and James Madison is more like the schools in the Sun Belt from an athletic department standpoint than what they're in right now in the Colonial Athletic Association.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just the budget alone. When you look at the fifty-eight million dollars per year, it, it makes absolutely no sense to spend that money to play FCS football and really, really to compete in the CAA and anything to be spending that kind of money when none of the other schools. And the conference are approaching that other than Delaware, which is you know still a significant gap between them and JMU. Yeah,
0: no doubt. It, it definitely feels it. You, you can sense it on Saturdays in the fall. You can sense it, I think, throughout the week leading up to games with how opponents of James Madison's football program looks at James Madison. When James Madison was just kind of starting to get good in this uh, half-decade run of national prominence, It was was the up-and-coming story, but no one was surprised because coaches around the league, around the CAA, I I can always remember them telling me, you know, Greg, JMU is is spending more money, double money, than than some of the the, the schools in the CAA is spending on football. They've prioritized it, and that's one of the reasons why they're good at getting good. They've always had access to players. It's always because they're in a state of Virginia and can recruit Richmond, Virginia Beach and Northern Virginia—they've always had access to players, but because of, of the money and the investment James Madison's made in its football program, it's always been viewed as the school in the league that's going to make the jump. Uh, so I, I don't think it's—I don't think it's surprising to anybody in the CAA. I don't think it's surprising to even folks at, at JMU who, which which, in the athletic department, which I'm sure you know, didn't exactly know when but when you kind of look at holistically what they've done over the last decade it, it shouldn't be uh it should not be a shocking shocking event and Shane that that kind of leads me into I wanted to get into what you wrote for for Wednesday's paper because James Madison is on the the precipice about to join a conference where it's going to be in a, in, in a group of schools that looks a lot like JMU you know you, you think about Appalachian State, you think about Marshall, you think about Georgia Southern, schools in college towns with diehard fan bases, with great football success at the FCS or or formerly 1AA level, and all of a sudden you're locking into this successful path the Sunbelts managed under the, the former commissioner Carl Benson and now the current commissioner Keith Gill
1: yeah and it's so interesting because i think for probably years you and i both you know would get the impression from talking to people that you know james first choice was to build their athletic program up to be considered for the american athletic conference correct and it's and it's you know just kind of amazing how quickly things changed gears from the american not looking like that premier destination to the sunbelt falling in line to becoming exact almost exactly what jmu had been looking for for all this time while a move up was something they were interested in but not quite ready to pull the trigger on um all of a sudden you've got those regional regional minded programs um you know jmu's probably still going to be outspending some of the uh you know, rivals in that conference, but there's still um, there's a similar emphasis on football, um, putting people in the stands, uh, playing competitive basketball, trying to get to the NCAA tournament. Just, you know, it's a great softball conference. Um, it seems likely, you know, that, you know, they're going to bring back men's soccer and be very, very competitive there. Um, there's just, you know, so many things that it just, in the blink of an eye, almost, it turned into the ideal destination for JMU.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt. I think when the American lost, and I've said this before, when the American lost Houston, Cincinnati, and Central Florida, it became, in my eyes at that point, but before the American raided CUSA, before that point when they had just lost the three big dogs to the Big 12, I thought that's a less attractive league all of a sudden with how spread out it is, with some of its. with just some of those schools that are in the league. I thought, you know, maybe that's not the right fit for, for JMU. Maybe the Sun Belt is because it has so many schools that have followed the path of, of, of the one JMU is likely going to have to follow in, in terms of the transition to the FBS. Uh, and, and that sort of deal, after immense success at the f c s level, so to me, I always thought really since since those three left the AAC for the big twelve that that the Sun Belt could be a big fit, a good fit, and then you throw in the fact that Old Dominion and Marshall even conference u s a to join the Sun Belt at the same time as James Madison, and all of a sudden you 've got this great geographic League. It was it was funny. I was talking to Mickey Matthews, the former JMU coach, earlier in the week, and and that story is online too. If you want to see it, dnronline.com, but. I was talking to him, and, and he said, you know, ever since he was an assistant in Georgia, and Georgia would bust to Tennessee and Alabama and Auburn and, and South Carolina, that he thought the bus leagues were the best because, of course, in the SEC, you got diehard, passionate fan bases, but you, you've got those diehard, passionate fan bases in and around each other in everyday life, you know? You, you, you see them at work, you see them. Uh, you know, going to games, whether it's at your home venue or on the road. And all of a sudden, you know, JMU is going to have that with other fan bases that care. There was a regional aspect to the to the CAA that, that was there. But you didn't have the immense support at Richmond or, or William & Mary or Villanova on the football side that you do at Marshall, at Appalachian State, at Old Dominion. I, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but man... Old Dominion and JMU fans—they are getting into it on Twitter already. I've seen it on my timeline a couple times, and I'm thinking, man, these games are going to be something—something so great, something so cool uh, when they play as conference rivals, and especially uh, if there's something on the line. I know, I know, for you, for basketball on the women's side, right? Sean O'Regan, the women's basketball coach, has been trying to schedule Old Dominion for years. Now, now they're going to have to play.
1: Yeah, twice a year, it'll be, it'll be something, and that's, you know, really, you know. My, you know, somewhat biased opinion, just like, you know, from covering a team, that, that's a game that needed to be played. That's two of the, you know, best women's programs around very historic historic rivalry. The fact that it hadn't been played in so many years was just insane to me when you have a chance to promote your game like that. Um, yeah, that's gonna be looked at really well really and anticipated really highly. Same for the men's basketball games twice a year. Um, it, it's just you look at the CAA and JMU really only had one true rivalry and that was Richmond and that was football only those was right. the only sport they're really playing them inconsistently um and even in that case it's another case of JMU investing way more into their football program than their so-called rival and it's hard to maintain it's hard to maintain the intensity in that situation you look around the rest of the CAA i mean we we've talked about this JMU's, I guess, in-state rival in CA and the rest of the sports besides football was William and Mary, and they went over a calendar year without playing William and Mary in anything, and nobody <laughs> noticed. Right, <laughs> you know, nobody was clamoring for that game, and uh, I think that just kind of shows you what how much more interest and intensity there's going to be for some of these you know regional rivalries once the Sun Belt is. Uh, once the move to the Sun Belts
0: complete, yeah, I was I was thinking this too. Like you make this move for for Saturdays in the fall. I know there's a section of the fan base that that is disappointed in leaving the FCS level because it appreciated it appreciates what happened in 2016, in 2004 when you hoist the national championship trophy. 2004 Chattanooga, 2016 in Frisco, and. You, you experience those playoff runs, and you're relevant in December and in in early January. That's awesome, right? There are there are fans that'll miss that, but you're not making the move for the for the postseason. You're making the move to fill the stadiums uh, on Saturday and in, in the fall, sell tickets, interest viewers that whether that's on TV or, or through a streaming platform like ESPN and ESPN Plus, uh, which is which is what the Sun Belt has through 2020. 31 I believe 2030 2031 uh, is, is the Sunbelts media rights deal you're making that move for, for for that reason right because you're gonna get to play those games and you're gonna get to experience those rivalries and and they're, and the people making these decisions firmly believe that that'll lead to you know economic uh, prosperity and, and profit in college sports—at least in this conference, the Sunbelt Conference—which James Madison is looking increasingly more likely to join. Each, you know, every every time a new day on the calendar hits for the last week or so, and so I think you know you take that because I I, I just. I just think that you know the last five years or so at JMU, their most relevant opponent has is, is resided, in football at least, has resided in Fargo, North Dakota. And there's nothing regional about that, which means you're basically living for the postseason in a potential matchup in a in a semifinal or a championship game. Now you're going to have games that, that mean something to your fan base week in and week out in the fall, and that's awesome. And then the other thing that I think is important to mention is – you know, most of the time, the, the FCS postseason is is a loser financially. Mickey Matthews said it, that they lost a million dollars when they won a national championship in 2004. The school lost a million dollars. And he said, you know, that the NCAA has never provided incentive, never enhanced the FCS brand, one A brand, in order to stay put at the FCS level. That's why you have schools like... Georgia Southern, Appalachian State, Marshall, and now JMU that have made the decision to move up. So there's a lot to this that that has to do with getting out of a situation that you can't be profitable in and people are losing interest in, except for the postseason, even though it's a financial loser, to joining something where there is potential uh, for, for JMU and its future.
1: Yeah, and I think you have to also keep in mind that it seems – Likely that there's going to be a 12 team playoff at the uh, FBS level at some point, and that if that happens, the Sun Belt champion should be in the mix for that a lot of years. And that you know that brings back the postseason aspect of it, and it also is just something that gets talked about throughout the regular season. You, you're talking about the exposure you get on ESPN and everything. If you're at the top of the Sun Belt standings in October when they start talking about playoff rankings and things you're going to get mentioned on every college football radio show, TV show around the country. Uh, it's going to you know that's definitely something I think has to be present when you consider the um pros and cons of FBS versus FCS at this
0: point. Yeah, no no doubt about it. I, I totally hear what you're saying. Uh, there. There there are going to be some growing pains. You look at every school that's made the jump. Not every school has had success overnight. The roster is going to have to be retooled a little bit. And and of course, you're going to have to add scholarship players. JMU is above the 63 scholarship limit in football right now. But they're going to have to go get to that 85 number eventually. And then through the transition, there's going to be some pain, right? You're going to get other coaches that recruit against you when you're trying to get the same kid that's considering Old Dominion and Appalachian State saying, "You know what? You know, you, you got to sit out a year and you basically you're going to play two years without anything on the line, right? You're going to have a transition year in all likelihood. Uh, next fall and then one after that where you're not bowl eligible in your first year as an FBS member so there's there's going to be some growing pains uh, on the football side at least for a little bit but you, you got to think ultimately down the road James Madison's proven it can win at the highest level in the FCS and, and win a national championship they've won two, as I mentioned you got to think they'll figure it out and, and that they'll be able to recruit and that's something Mickey Matthews that told me too is that you know, you instantly are gonna get a better caliber of football player. So even though the first few years may may be difficult in the transition, that down the road, James Madison can absolutely win at that level. What do you think from a basketball standpoint? I don't know if you've thought about this at all from a from a basketball standpoint, what the Sun Belt and what that transition could look like for JMU out of the CAA and in the Sun Belt. I'm not sure if it's going to immediately make a huge difference. Basketball wise, but I do think that um, you know if you look at the CAA and you look at
1: the Sun Belt, the Sun Belt is probably slightly closer to getting to that point of being a two or three bid NCAA tournament league, which is you know another potential additional revenue stream if that can happen in that conference. They're adding JMU and ODU, who. Are going to be among the most invested in basketball programs in the conference with their facilities, what they're willing to pay their coaches, and things like that. And then, you know, the Marshall has also had some, you know, fairly recent success. So, I think the basketball league is probably improving at this point. Uh, it's still not there to being, you know, a top notch mid major, but I think it probably has the potential to get there. Uh, on the women's basketball side, the Sun Belt's just, you know, frankly, not. A very good league um but i think for the women you get that they play a solid non-conference schedule any year every year anyway and you get that odu rivalry back so i think that um gives them some positives with the move and i think it just helps like a lot of other sports too you look at you know softball they're going to be moving to a better softball conference and playing games in the uh, areas in the Southeast where they tend to recruit. So I think it's going to be a big move for a lot of
0: programs. Yeah, the baseball league in Sunbelt is is very good. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the thought of the league likely bringing men's soccer back, which is good because JMU, ODU, and Marshall have the sport. There are three other uh, schools that play soccer that that reside in the Sunbelt Conference, even though they're soccer their men's soccer teams are affiliate members elsewhere. I think Georgia State and Georgia Southern – playing the Mac, and then, who am I missing? There's one other uh, that, that plays in CUSA. Coastal Carolina plays in CUSA for men's soccer, so that's likely to bring men's soccer back. As far as James Madison's other sports, lacrosse, field hockey, swimming and diving, which, which the Sunbelt does not sponsor, it, it seems like James Madison's going to have to find a new home for, for those sports particularly.
1: Yeah, and nobody's like told me this directly, but I would think, you know, looking at the Big East, especially for um, field hockey and lacrosse would be an ideal situation. ODU plays, ODU and Liberty both play Big East field hockey. Um, It's not loaded with teams, so I think that they would have room to add a program the caliber of James Madison um, and lacrosse. Lacrosse, I think lots of school. I would think lots of conferences would be eager to add JMU's lacrosse team, coming off a recent national championship and you know a string of NCAA tournament appearances. You know, the Big East again would be an option for lacrosse, um, and possibly the American where ODU parts their lacrosse program. But I, I would think that those situations would probably clear themselves up fairly easily.
0: Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. Should be. Should be interesting to see what happens. Should be interesting. It, it, I've, I've enjoyed I enjoyed watching on on Tuesday some of uh, via Zoom some of that Southern Miss press conference, and it seems like that'll happen at Old Dominion uh, 2 where Keith Gill, uh, the Sunbelt commissioner, stops by. I, I believe that that'll be Thursday morning. I assume the same thing will happen in Huntington, West Virginia, and and at JMU. Shane, I, I gotta ask. Are there any Sunbelt towns that, that you are going to be eager to visit?
1: Um. Well, Boone is absolutely beautiful. And, um, you know, Huntington's a pretty short drive away. I, I've been to you a few times. So that's not, not, nothing new for me. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot. You know, there's, it's full of those great college towns. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I you know started looking at some of them on Wikipedia and stuff, and Troy looks like a cool little town. And uh, I've been to Hattiesburg years ago, and it had a, a beautiful campus and uh, was you know had, had a big vibe. Like back then, I think they were selling a lot more football tickets, and the scene and everything was really cool. Um, so yeah, I think just you know all around, it's going to give you more of that like you know, raw, raw college sports field and maybe some of the uh, CAA destinations have.
0: Yeah, I, I, I've i been to Huntington, West Virginia, uh, and that's, that, those fans care a lot, you know, and that, that's, that's what it all comes back to for me is just, like, the fans in these towns, you know, especially when their teams get good, they're going to show up, and they're going to pack their stadiums, and they're going to travel, and I think that's the other part of this, too. A lot of these fan bases really haven't had the opportunity, at least the ones coming in, uh, to travel to road games all that often because either they're not interested or it's too far away. Like I heard Southern Miss AD say yesterday that, that they're going to save a half million dollars in travel, uh, which means that's something they you know, you, you think about that. What does that mean? It's it's closer trips and their fan base is going to get to experience that. And for, for JMU to have Marshall basically three and a half hours west and Old Dominion four hours east in and, and Norfolk, it's it's pretty amazing. Uh, the fans are gonna love that. Love that aspect of it and uh, I think it's it's something to be very, very excited about. Uh so Shane it, it, it's it's a pleasure to have you on. Is there anything else you wanted to add before I before I let you go and I get into to some of the on field football for the Dukes this week?
1: Uh no, I can't think of anything right now. I guess we'll be finding out a little bit more about the basketball teams here and the uh Coming hours and days with the media days and things coming up, so uh, might have some more to add after that.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt about it. The CAA bad women's basketball media is, is Wednesday. It's actually going to be shortly after we're done taping here, and then uh, the men's basketball is Thursday. I'm sure, I'm sure Joe D'Antonio, the CAA commissioner, is going to be asked a little bit about it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, so that that should be that should be quite interesting. Anyway, Shane, appreciate you coming on a walkthrough. through this week and, and starting a podcast off with me on this Thursday, October 28th edition of the pod. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks, Craig. Big thanks to Shane for for dropping by and he's been he's been terrific to work with on all this conference realignment stuff. We've really tag teamed it for, for the last 18 months. And if you want to read some of the stories that, that have helped chronicle James Madison's potential jump to the FBS, you can do so, you can find that link, dnronline.com, I tweeted it out too, uh, so you can find it on my Twitter timeline, but I think if you guys kind of want to get the full picture, go back and read some of those stories that we did, really beginning at the at the early parts of, of COVID quarantine and, and how it was impacting athletic departments when you really felt there was going to be massive shake-up in the industry so big thanks to Shane for for stopping by and we'll continue to roll along here with the with with what's going to happen on Saturday what happened this past Saturday I I think I need to say it because I feel like it's being lost a little bit and and it's understandable because a jump to FBS is huge massive news it's it's helping me fill the paper Uh, but also important is what's going on on the field for this current JMU team. I don't I don't want you guys to lose sight of this Dukes team, which has been playing really hard. A lot of older players, seniors specifically, that the FBS move isn't going to affect their impact or be part of their lives, and they're in it for this year to win a national championship, leave JMU on a good note, and as a program, too, I would think for some of the younger players in the program who are likely to play at the FBS level for JMU, I would think that those players would want to put JMU in a good spot with good momentum going into their transition to the FBS, right? If if you're going to play at that level, the the transition is hard enough, so you'd want to make sure you capitalize on the opportunity to to win a national championship. So this is the present situation, and I think that's something you can't neglect is is how important it is to these players, the seniors, of course, the rest of the roster and a coaching staff uh, about, about how critical this year is and, and how to finish uh, a run in the FCS very, very strong. So let's get to that now. JMU beat Delaware this past Saturday, 22-10, and the Dukes have a home contest against Elon on Saturday when the Phoenix visit Bridgeford Stadium. And I'll do this rolling through with the three comments you need to hear. I'll begin with the JMU-Delaware game. So this was a defensive battle, right? Delaware was really struggling to move the ball, period, stop. JMU held Delaware to 109 yards of total offense. It's the second straight week. JMU has held an opponent below the 200 yards of total offense mark. The, the week before, the Dukes did at Richmond, holding Richmond to 188 yards of total offense. This past Saturday, did it at Delaware. For, for a Delaware offense, that just couldn't move the ball. Dejean Lee, the outstanding Blue Hens running back, the CA Offensive Player of the Year this past spring, was held to like 30 rushing yards on, on 15 carries as an entire offense. Delaware was held to... 0.8 yards per rush, which is pretty outstanding. The Dukes just defense swarming all over the place. I've been told so many times this year by, by different coaches that the defensive line is excellent and the linebackers might even be better with Diamante tucker Dorsey and Kelvin Azanama playing for the Dukes in those, those linebacker positions because of how well they understand how the defensive line moves for JMU and what the opposing offense is going to do. So that defense was 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 really shutting things down and, and really slowing Delaware down on offense. Of course, they have quarterback problems, which is part of it, but you still got to stop the people in front of you, hoping, hoping to move the football down the field. And and really, it was a close game. Remember, Delaware did score a touchdown. They had driven the field thanks to a couple of pass interference calls. And then all of a sudden, their backup quarterback, Zach Gwynn, uh, threw a touchdown there uh, to put Delaware ahead. JMU didn't go ahead until, uh, again, until the third quarter when Ethan Ratke kicked a field goal to put them up 12-10. And I think that that was like a 47-yarder through the rain. And then later in that in that second half, this was the play that broke open the game, and if you're a JMU fan, you finally felt like, gosh, JMU's going to win this game, and, and you don't you, you can kind of relax a little bit. It was Cole Johnson's 36-yard touchdown run on a quarterback option keeper. He decided to keep the ball, and it fooled everybody in the stadium. What was left of everybody in the stadium? Remember, it had rained. It was soaking wet, and a lot of fans headed for the exit, so... Cole Johnson scored that touchdown, put JMU up. I believe at that point it was 19-10, and you felt at that point there was no way JMU was going to lose the game because their defense was playing really, really well, and Delaware couldn't move the ball, frankly. So, kind in of interesting in terms of how that game played out. This is the first comment you need to hear. It's JMU coach Kurt Signetti on Cole Johnson's long touchdown run that sealed the victory. I was
2: getting a lot happier, feeling a lot better when I saw him run with it. I've seen it before from him, uh, probably three or four times. I think people sometimes overcommit to the back and kind of disregard him, And it was a great read. It was a big play in that game. So Cole Johnson's
0: touchdown there broke the game open. You heard Signetti say how he thought it, it, it's it's a play where occasionally. Uh, the the defense will over-pursue on a running back, and a quarterback will have an opportunity to make the play. And, and everybody knows Colt Johnson's not the most elusive runner, but when he gets out in space, he's he's able to handle it, and he had a clear shot toward that end zone. So nice run there for Colt Johnson to separate it. And the rest of the way for, for JMU in terms of getting on the board and, and putting points on the board was from, from Ethan Radke, who was, just tremendous. James Madison's great place kicker. A seriously excellent day for Ethan Radke. Made a pair of 47 yarders, including one through the rain and the wind. And and gosh, that that must have been a very, very difficult kick. He he said, you know, I just try not to think about the rain and in that situation. But that was the one that put JMU up 12-10, to 10, that 47-yarder in the third quarter through the rain. So he made a pair of 47-yarders, made a 42-yarder in the fourth quarter, and then field goals from 30 and 37 yards in the first quarter. So an excellent day, 5-for-5 five five day for Ethan Radke, who was the CA Special Teams Player of the Week for the second straight week after after making four field goals the week before at Richmond and he he's bounced back nicely since since a bad fourth quarter against Villanova when he had opportunities to give JMU the lead and and help them beat the Wildcats uh but the, but he didn't. So he's bounced back nicely since then, and that's only a good thing for for James Madison. And the special teams aspect I think played a big part on Saturday too, beyond just Ethan Radke. Harry O'Kelly punted the ball really, really well. Four of his six punts were inside the Delaware twenty, and one was pinning Delaware at the at their own two yard line. I thought they got great contributions from Kai Holmes and and MJ Hampton, and then also. Jalen Walker, and this is something I asked Signetti about after the game, I said, you know, if Walker doesn't come up with that recovery after an onside kick try by Delaware, just how, how big of a play in the game is it or isn't it, you know, depending on if he makes it, if he doesn't make it, and Signetti said it was huge, and he said Jalen Walker's got a bright future, is, is one of the backups at linebacker at this point in his career, true freshman, uh, but made an excellent play on the hands team, a former high school running back. So... It encouraging to see that JMU's getting getting good efforts from its special teams. And I think its special teams is, is really improving in an area that can help them win some games if for their close in the postseason or, or or even beyond that. So so encouraging win for JMU. It ugly win at times, especially when the rain's pouring down and the weather isn't good. It was one of those weird games where it started sunny, weather was beautiful. Uh, A little bit of overcast, and all of a sudden, the skies opened up, and and it was a different type of football game there in the second half. So Jamie beats Delaware 22-10 this past Saturday in scenic, lovely Newark, Delaware. And now the Dukes are on to a matchup with the Phoenix of Elon, and I'll set the scene for this Saturday right now. It'll be number five, James Madison hosting Elon James Madison is 6-1 overall and 4-1 and in the Colonial Athletic Association. Elon is 4-3 overall and 3-1 and in the CAA. The Phoenix, though, they've won three straight, so they come in pretty hot to, to Harrisonburg and Bridgeport Stadium as the Dukes will get ready to play play a tough Elon team that if you guys remember the last time and, and this is this is the storyline I think with this game the last time Elon came to JMU the Phoenix doled the Dukes a loss you know handed the Dukes a 27-24 loss it was the only loss of the Mike Houston era in Harrisonburg at at, at Bridgeport Stadium. Of course Kurt Signetti was the head coach on the other sideline. At that time, Tony Trisiani, Elon's now head coach, was the defensive coordinator then. Of course, you've got members on, on both staffs, assistant coaches, who were on the sideline for Elon that day too. So you got a lot of people involved. And then, of course, for, from JMU's perspective, a lot of players remember that game. A lot of players recall that game and, and don't forget what happened. I know Nick Kidwell told me, and you'll, you'll hear from Kidwell in a little bit, Kidwell told me, of course he remembers it. It, it, it. it frankly was one of the bad, bad losses in JMU for the Dukes in their history. So, JMU leads the all-time series with Elon 8-1, but that one loss certainly sticks out. This was Elon Coach, and this is the second comment you need to hear. This is Elon Coach Tony Trisciani on what Elon's win in 2018 at JMU meant to that Phoenix program. This is the second comment you need to hear. It meant a
1: lot to the program and what I remember most um was just the attitude of our of our team and, and everyone in our locker room. There was nobody on the bus or in our program or, or in that locker room that didn't believe that we could go out and and beat JMU that day and they were as good as any team in the country. Um, and our guys just went out and And we're locked in and played hard and, you know, had to overcome some adversity. And, you know, we we had some tricks up our sleeve, you know, offensively and special teams wise. And and things fell into place for us. And, um, you know, due to a great effort and belief by our by our players, we were able to, to get a big win on the road.
0: So just to take you back to that game, you guys know the key players involved in that one, especially on the Elon side. I'm sure you remember Malcolm Summers, the running back, outstanding running back there for Elon for a number of years, 185 rushing yards. But of course, the big play that gave Elon the win was Davis Cheek's 15-yard touchdown pass with 117 to go. That that was the difference in the ball game and gave Elon the 27-24 score. It would win by and Cheek is is still tearing it up. You know he's he's had a couple of injury riddled seasons since then, injury ridden seasons since then. But but really, overall, is is one of the best quarterbacks in the Colonial Athletic Association and in the FCS. I would think he's a candidate for Player of the Year in the league along with. Villanova quarterback Daniel Smith so I think one of those two guys will win the award if they keep playing like they've been playing but if you look at what Cheek's done this season he's thrown for 2,047 yards and 13 touchdowns compared to only three interceptions he's rushed for another two scores he really is the 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 great, great player that makes that Elon offense go. This past week at New Hampshire, I think he was he was the CIA Offensive Player of the Week this week and the National Offensive Player of the Week this week. He completed 87% of his throws for 328 yards and two touchdowns in, in Elon's home win over New Hampshire, which is its, which was its third straight win. They've beaten Richmond at Richmond, at Maine, Maine at Maine, and then New Hampshire at home in the last three games. Uh, so they're, they're now about 500. and honestly, if they beat JMU this Saturday, they're in that playoff conversation too. So big game, big, big game for the Phoenix as, as they try to make a run toward the postseason, a late push. It's a, a team that's really improving. As the season's gone along, I, I, I've heard Kurt Signetti say it, Tony Triciani say it, that they've overcome adversity a little bit, their offensive line is getting better, their defensive front is getting better, and they're kind of maturing as a football team, and they have a quarterback that's already at that spot, right? Davis Cheek is that senior veteran presence. This is the third comment you need to hear. It's JMU coach Kurt Signetti. Remember, started Davis Cheek when Davis Cheek was a freshman at Elon. It's Signetti on Davis Cheek, the Elon quarterback. This is the third comment you need to hear.
2: He's a veteran guy, and uh, the receivers are playing well. Parham's really stepped up for him, and the line's improved. Back's a good receiver out of the backfield. You know, they got four or five receivers Brave Boy, Weeks, uh, Daughtry. Uh, you know they got a good scheme. Drew does a great job with that offense. Uh, Cheek knows where to go with the ball. The thing about Cheek is he studies relentlessly. Like you know, I read an article where he was in the office every day last week, late at night, just studying and studying and reprepping and you know for the little indicators of whether he's getting man or zone, so he knows where to go with the ball and get it out fast. And he's always been crafty too under pressure, being able to avoid. And get rid of the ball from different release points. He's always reminded me since day one of Philip Rivers when he was at NC State. Uh, you know, in terms of being able to get the ball out quick, process things quickly, very accurate, different release points. Uh, you know, when Rivers was at State, he had a strong arm, and uh, Cheeks got a strong arm, and uh, so uh, he's a great player.
0: So something Signetti also mentioned when when he was talking a little bit about James Madison's defense, he's the one that pointed this out that yeah, Jamie's defense has been really good, but they've also feasted on backup quarterbacks the last few weeks and and games they've been really successful in, and that's something I've I've written about too. I wrote about it going into the Delaware game that they'd see another backup quarterback in Zach Quinn since Nolan Henderson was hurt, and and then if you think back to to Richmond, Joe Mancuso was out, so. They saw Bo English, they saw a couple of other quarterbacks, New Hampshire played its backup quarterback with Brett Edwards, uh, and, and Weber State with, was without its starting quarterback. So JMU is at Maine too, right? JMU knocked Maine's quarterback out in the first quarter, Joe Fanato, and then Maine was forced to play a backup quarterback. So the Dukes have seen a number of different quarterbacks this year, backup quarterbacks that they've let their defensive line go and attack, and this past Saturday, to kind of get back into that, uh, just just one thing I wanted to get back to with that Delaware game, they they got great pass rushes and and plays in the backfield uh, from across their defensive line. And the one play that stuck out to me that set up the Johnson touchdown was Abi and a second year transfer from Minnesota. He got to Gwyn in that third quarter, forced a fumble, and Chris Chuck the safety, recovered it that set up the play three plays later when when Johnson scored his touchdown so really critical critical play and they're going to need that Jamie defensive line to be good this this Saturday against Davis Cheek They've gotten contributions from a number of different players on their D-line. Of course, Mike Green, first and foremost. Bryce Carter's had an excellent year. I actually think it'll be Bryce Carter in the mix for CAA Defensive Player of the Year. Isaac Gukwu has been very good at times, too. James Carpenter, Tony Thurston have also, in terms of guy, other guys, Zabi and Iconagy, as I mentioned, has given them good reps off the bench. And Iconagy... He's backing up Bryce Carter right now, so it's, it's tough for him to get his moments on the field, but he made the most of it this past Saturday, so I caught up with him on Tuesday after practice, learned a little bit more about that play he made against Delaware when he sacked Zach Gwynn, forced him to fumble, and it really turned the tide in the game and, and gave JMU a clear path toward toward taking a taking a bigger, larger lead. So, here is my chat with and Nakoniji, also a little bit about his journey from Minnesota to Harrisonburg, FBS Minnesota to Harrisonburg is my chat with him Tuesday after practice. And I do want to apologize for a little bit of the wind in the background. It was just the wind was going nuts on Tuesday after practice. So I'm sorry if you hear a little wind in the background at times. Uh, you could probably fight through it to listen to the, the interview, but wanted to apologize for it anyway. So here's my chat with Abby and Iconagy. All right, Abby, I'll, I'll start here. This past Saturday at Delaware, you get in the game and, and you make a big, big-time play. What was going through your head when... Uh, you're chasing their quarterback, forcing the fumble, and, and make make one of the big plays of that second half.
3: Oh uh, well, I was just trying to do my job there, uh, being physical, doing a um, a bull rush down the middle. I saw the I was going to go inside, and I saw the quarterback going outside, so I just shed outside, and ripped through. He was holding me, but had to rip through and got the sack strip. When you're when you're playing, and you know you know that you may
0: only get. 10 to 15 reps, maybe 20 reps if, if things are going really, really well for you and you, you have to they, keep, they have to keep you on the field. What's kind of your mindset coming off the
3: bench and, and providing a spark in your opportunities? Well, I just uh, ask for opportunity, and when I get the opportunity, try to do my best and uh, use it up to its fullest. You know, we got the guys in there that are in there right now, and I'm always supportive of them, cheering them on. And when I get my opportunity, I don't want any you know, drop-off from the production that they've obviously showed on the football field. You guys as a defense have, have just been very, very dominant the last few weeks, holding opponents under 200 yards each, Richmond, and, and last week, Delaware. What's, what's been the key? Uh, well, we're just playing sound, good defense right now, so you just got to keep it rolling um, out on the field and during practice every single day. We're running to the ball, being physical you know we got the scout team giving us a great look they hate how we beat up on them sometimes but they give us a great look so it's just continue to build good habits that are going to show on Saturdays
4: when
0: you were deciding to come to come to JMU from Minnesota what was what
3: was the reason why the Duke stuck out to you, and, and what, were you, what was your idea about coming here? Oh uh, well, um you kind of chose me in a sense where uh, I wasn't—I was in the portal, wasn't getting that many leads at the time, and so uh, when I got the chance to come up here for a visit, I saw like I came up for a, a, a practice. I right before they shipped off to the national championship, so that's always an enticing thing to see. You get to come here, you play for national championship, playing big games, so. Uh, it was just a blessing to be able to come here, fit in, be a part of the family. When you decided to to commit to Minnesota, how big of a move just life-wise was that? You're from
0: Georgia, right? Yeah. How big of a move life-wise was that?
3: Well, I feel like... Uh... It definitely was a big move, uh, like change when you talk about the weather, for sure. Like uh, Georgia weather, you got the humidity, heat. You go up there to Minnesota, and it's uh, snowing for like nine months out of the year. So uh, that's definitely one switch. But I went up there with one of my high school teammates, so it wasn't that bad. What other schools did you consider out of high school? Uh, Michigan State, Wake Forest, Boston College, Mississippi State. So it was a couple of them, but it was really Minnesota, Wake Forest at the top. Gotcha. And then, when you decided to transfer, you said JMU was was kind of the only school that reached out. Did you have other opportunities? Well, I had other opportunities, but they were kind of going cold. And I had a um, want to be into school starting in the spring semester. So uh, there were some coaches that were reaching out, but they weren't as uh, wanting as JMU was. Who was your lead recruiter at JMU? Uh, Coach Heatherman. Okay. Oh, yeah. so you so you were being recruited by the guy you were going to play yeah, for. Did for. that sure. Did that help? Definitely did. Uh, coming here, me and my dad came up here for a visit, and uh, having dinner with him and Coach Jacks at the time yeah. felt like a good place for me to come in and be able to earn my spot here, earn my keep, and that's what I've been doing since. I was going to say, what did you what did you learn at Minnesota that you think maybe has helped you here get on the field and, and excel when you're on the field? Uh, well, you know everybody knows about the roadabout culture so uh definitely being in that uh that environment is uh very big on discipline and everything and feeling like I'd be able to come here being able to come here and uh it's a whole new place and uh the discipline that I learned there was able to carry on for me to be able to come here and do what I want to do and uh get on the field.
0: Minnesota's been a pretty
3: good program the last few years, coming from one program with a winning culture to
0: another. Did, that, did, that, did you sense that, too?
3: Oh, uh, definitely. You know, uh, at Minnesota, you're competing for a Big Ten championships, chances to go in the playoff. You come here, you're competing for a national championship every year. And so uh, always having high-level football, high-pressure situations is the best way to play football. I know Kurt had told me today that, that you could
0: play probably inside if you had to, but are, are better outside. Uh, what, what do you think your strength is, and, and has the versatility helped you this year?
3: So definitely versatility has been a uh, uh, key to my game for as long as I remember. And so... Just uh, being able to come into spots wherever the team needs me and be able to contribute, you know, that's all I'm worried about. No
0: doubt. Do, do you envision yourself being an every-down player in the next year or so? You know, I know you got some really good players ahead on the depth chart right now, but uh, do you think it's something you're you're you have your sights on working into?
3: Uh, well, I don't really focus too much about the future. I'm more focused right now, focused on getting this national championship. But if that comes, I know I'll be ready for sure.
0: Nah, no, no no doubt. Are you having fun at JMU? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> Man, I love it here. In
3: Harrisonburg. It's like a it's like a whole new world for sure. I'm enjoying myself.
0: So Abby is is putting together a decent year considering he's only getting limited reps. He's he has two sacks, two and a half tackles for laws. And and Kurt Cignetti had mentioned this that, that he's probably playing 10, 15 snaps a game on defense for JMU. So they've gotten contributions like that all year from, from backup reserve players. Uh, and James Madison certainly uh, certainly will take it to get their, their top-line first string guys. Uh, so it's so a breather, right? You, you're going to need that throughout the year, especially if you're going to play a long season and deep into the postseason uh, if you're JMU. So the Dukes will, will continue to hope they get good play from their defensive line because they're going to need it Saturday with, with Davis Cheek and that Elon offense on the other side. Elon like I said, is an improving, improving football team. And you look the last couple of weeks, Elon has scored 33 in a win at Maine, 24 in a win over New Hampshire. They scored 31 in a loss to William & Mary back in late September. But they're they're pretty consistent on offense, and that offensive line is getting better. So they they need good defensive line play. James Madison needs good defensive line play. Again, okay. I want to flip sides of the off uh, of the line of scrimmage at this point, and just touch on some of the changes for James Madison's offensive line. The big, big negative coming out of Saturday's game at Delaware was that James Madison uh, has lost its starting center, J.T. Timming, for the rest of the season. He's got a broken tibia, and that stinks. That that is not good for the Dukes' offensive line, especially. Kind of consider the personal aspect of it right? He's a 6th year senior He waited his turn all those seasons Behind Mac Patrick Earned a starting spot in the spring And kept it into this year And he's kind of been the, the one old guy On that offensive line For a group that started three freshmen For the majority of the fall And to see Timming go down That's a big, big blow To that offensive line The good news is They're likely to get Liam Fornado back on Saturday. Kurt Cignetti said he was hopeful to get Fornado, the All-American senior tackle, back on on Saturday. So I think that would be a huge boost to the Dukes if Fornado plays. They absolutely could use the veteran presence and someone to call out what this Elon front is doing. Because remember, they're going to run that three-down 3-3-5 looking defense like Villanova does. And that gave James Madison some problems earlier this month when Villanova beat the Dukes in Harrisonburg. So they're gonna have to identify that. Uh, and they're gonna count on Fornado, and they're also gonna count on Nick Kidwell, James Madison's right tackle, who who's really I I think has been the program's most consistent offensive lineman since the spring since the start of the spring i think he started the last 15 games that they've played right seven in the spring or seven in the fall eight in the spring so he started the last 15 games and he's been very very consistent for the Duke. so i caught up with nick kidwell after practice on tuesday Touched on that Delaware win for JMU. And also, what lies ahead for the Dukes on Saturday with the Phoenix and how that Elon defense compares to what Villanova wants to do. So here is my chat with Nick Kidwell, James Madison's right tackle. All right, Nick, you guys off your, off a nice win at, at Delaware. What worked for you guys this past Saturday? What do you guys take away uh, from, from that win, a tough, tough road win at Delaware?
4: Yeah. yeah, I feel like we played real physical so instead of that. And uh, I feel like we came out and played really hard from the jump, and I feel like that helped us in the long run out the win. I was going to say, when you see Cole taking off and, and
0: sprinting toward the end zone, what's your your reaction during a game where you guys moved the ball well at times but just hadn't broken that, that big play off or found the end zone yet? What's your reaction yeah. as an old
4: lineman in that situation? Um, Yeah, we were – the ball would not even go to play side a bunch, but they were bending hard backsides, so seeing the ball get backside and seeing a, one of our big runs of the year go, it was pretty cool to see him get loose. How, how close do you feel like you guys are getting
0: as an old line with, with the chemistry, the continuity? I know you lose JT, which which stinks,
4: uh, but, but how close do you feel like you guys are getting? Yeah, those young kids are really, really improving. They're really... They're, they're we pulled the banky on them. They're making their own calls and they have to own up for their own mistakes. And I feel like they're getting a lot better, more more confident as the year goes on. When
0: JT went down, what was your what was your feeling? And I guess how did how did you react in the moment, knowing that those young guys are probably all looking at yeah. you all of a sudden?
4: Yeah, I mean, I was I was kind of shocked because JT's always in my center since my, since I've been here. I mean, I worked with Mac a little bit, but JT was my center since I've been here. So it hurt a little bit, but once Stan came in he did a good job i i helped him out with some calls but now i feel like i got to be more vocal and so yeah i've been trying to do that how's stanley
0: been at practice this week how's he doing knowing that that he'll be in a starting role for the first time at
4: jmu He started before at uconn but yeah. he'll do it for the first time at, at jmu um he's, he's getting a lot more confident he's got to make more calls with us and i um, just sticking to him getting the double team fits right and i think we'll be golden this week, that that communication, I'm sure, is,
0: is going to be important with a with a tricky Elon defense. They run that three down front like like Villanova
4: does. Uh, how, how similar is it, and, and what are you seeing
0: from Elon as, as you start
4: to study them? Um, they're they're a lot like Villanova. You know, they're more side to side. They like to they like to slant the front. They like to blitz off the edge. And I feel like we got a pretty good game plan going in. We just got to be physical and dominate uh, from the get go. Yeah,
0: no, no doubt about it. who stands out on
4: their their defensive front. Um, the linebackers number twelve and fifty are both physical guys, and their nose guard's been there a while. He's I think he's a senior now. I was say Tristan Cox, yeah, right? Played against yeah, against them a long time, and <laughs> he's always been in there. So he's he's a pretty the big dude. Is
0: there any motivation on it? They, this is Kurt's old team. Do you yeah. guys still get
4: that, or have you played them enough at this point? Yeah, that was my freshman year. I kind of sucked when they came in here, and that was our only uh, only home loss. Under Mike Houston, yeah, under Houston, a yeah, yeah. freshman year, yeah, so, I got it hurt. So there, there is some
0: of that conversation yeah, this week about making vote. sure you take care of him
4: at home. Yeah, yeah. there's some bad folks between us now.
0: Okay, yeah. fair, fair, fair enough. Uh, if you guys get Liam back this week, I know Kurt said it's a possibility. If you guys get him back, how big of a boost is, is that to your line?
4: Yeah, I mean, anytime you gain a guy of Liam's caliber, it's it's awesome. He's a really smart guy. He's a great leader. And I feel like it takes a lot of weight off the guys playing next to him, the younger kids. Uh, I feel like you can just take them on their wing and set all the calls and then you just get rolling off the ball physical. You and Cole have to have some pretty good chemistry yeah. at this point. How would you say that's that's come along? You've played next to each other since the spring. Yeah, I mean, this year I've really started to like step away from him, like not make every call and point out which guy he's going to. So he's getting a lot more comfortable and we can start focusing on getting physical. Finishing guys. I hey, feel like we've done that. I was
0: gonna say you you've seen that from him yeah. a little
4: more. Yeah, we really we really got physical up front, really gotten them going backwards. For you, as as kind of the older, younger veteran, however you want yeah. to term it, older younger yeah.
0: veteran, uh, what do you think the potential is for for this whole line? You know, two years down the road, three years down the road, as you start thinking about maybe you all you guys playing together for, for such a long
4: time. I mean, the the sky's the limit for those guys. Yeah. I mean, they're all freshmen. They're all super smart. So if they just keep sticking those in the grindstone attitude, they can accomplish anything they want. Gotcha. And I guess uh,
0: you guys not paying attention to any of the FBS stuff?
4: No, I feel like Robo said it best. It's, It's not important to us now. What's important to us is Wednesday's practice. And then Thursday practice and then our game. So yeah, it's no it's noise, but we gotta be able to be disciplined with distractions.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you there. And I guess, uh, just as you kinda go through the rest of this this CA schedule with what are you Well then you step out of conference, play Campbell, but uh, just down to stretch, what do you think's gonna be important for this team to start trying to peak
4: as the, the playoffs near? Um, I would say not looking too far ahead. Just going taking it game by game and uh, not looking at any playoff scenes, nothing like that. Just focus on winning the next game.
0: So it should be an interesting matchup with, with Elon on Saturday. You heard Kidwell talking about some of the challenges. And, and Tristan Cox, the, the Phoenix nose tackle, is certainly a player to watch on Saturday. He's been there for a number of years. I feel like I've written about him before. Same thing with Cheek, obviously, and then the connection Cheek has to Signetti and the James Madison staff. So it's interesting when you get that dynamic of two coaching staffs that, that know each other really, really well, uh, and this one, that's that's about as close of a connection as you could get with Signetti with having been the head coach at Elon uh, right before taking the James Madison job, and Triciani, Signetti's defensive coordinator then elevating the head coach ahead of the 2019 season after Signetti had left for, for JMU. So really, really fascinating stuff, and I think creates a little bit of a cat-and-mouse game between the two staffs, uh, if you could call it that, chess match, however you want to sum it up. A little battle of the minds as they try to adjust and adapt to what each other is doing. I think for, for JMU, you saw... You saw them try to run the ball, I think, a little bit more against Delaware and and did a decent job of it, I thought. Ran for 195 yards against Delaware. Obviously, Cole Johnson's big 36-yarder had a lot to do with that. I think Latrell Palmer had a 25-yard run. But it's the first time I think you really saw them commit to running the football and get back to their identity a little bit. And I know early in the game when they had a – had a turnover on downs after four straight runs. I think that was their opening possession. Four straight runs. Went for it on fourth down. Didn't get it. Couldn't get couldn't get 10 yards on the ground in four plays. Uh, you kind of felt like what's JMU doing? Delaware was selling out to the run, and J- JMU still ran for 195 yards. So I wonder if that helps give them some momentum moving forward in the run game. I think Latrell Palmer has looked excellent this season for the most part. He averaged, I think, about four yards a carry against Delaware. Ran for 74 yards. He was the leading rusher in the game. Cole Johnson had a long touchdown. You know, you're you not going to expect that every week. Percy say I think you'd, you'd like to see him get going a little bit more. He's been a little slower to get back to usual uh, than, than you might have thought. Lorenzo Bryan, I think, is, is, is capable of contributing. Austin Douglas the same way. Uh, so I think you'll, you'll continue to see JMU commit to that running game, especially against some of these defenses that use a three-down front. Now, I think you probably want more touches for, for players of Antoine Wells and Chris Thornton's caliber. Some of the rain probably had a little bit to do with that. Delaware's defense, too. But Thornton, who came into this past Saturday leading the CAA in catches, you guys heard him on the podcast last week, only one catch for four yards against Delaware. I'm sure they're going to try to get him the ball a little bit more. Wells, only two catches for 43 yards a week ago. So I, I have a feeling you'll see those two worked in a little bit more. But overall, I think the offense is is primarily going to try to get back to that downhill running game, especially since you got Liam Fornado coming back. So... That'll do it for this week's edition of the Walkthrough Podcast. I'm sorry I didn't take any of your questions this week. I tried to address as many as I've seen on Twitter uh, over the last week or so in that first segment with Shane, and we kind of just talked about it organically, so I hope that answered some of your questions there. And as soon as we get a little bit on a, on a normal schedule, I'll try to take your questions down the road. But anyway, that'll do it for this week's edition of the Walkthrough Podcast. It'll be James Madison and Elon on Saturday at 2 p.m. at Bridgeport Stadium in Harrisonburg. You can get all your coverage dnronline.com. I'll have it for you. So until next week, I am Greg Medea saying thanks for tuning in.